the first gospel to be written. There's a little bit of debate about that, uh, but I believe it was the first, and it was written to the nation of Israel, and it was designed to persuade them that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed their long-promised Messiah from their Old Testament scriptures. But in addition to that, we, as we discovered in our survey uh, of this book, um, this first gospel was also announcing that the King of the Jews is God's appointed Lord of all. Uh, Matthew climaxes with that claim in the last chapter. But right now we are looking at the beginning of this gospel or the good news, and part of that good news is the nature of the birth of this person who is claiming to be the Lord of all. His birth was unlike any other individual who has ever been conceived in history. So I want to read about that beginning in verse 18. And let's just allow God Himself to explain to us what was so miraculous about this birth. Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, a person does not have to be a true believer in Christ to recognize that this passage is claiming that the conception and the birth of Jesus was a miracle. Let me say that again. You do not have to be a true Christian in order to at least understand that this passage is claiming that the birth of Jesus was a miracle. It's just that obvious. It's just stated that plainly. Now, of course, outside of one's own death, I don't think that there is much that a person is less prepared for than the experience of a miracle. If you ask the average person if they believe in luck, they would probably say, that they think that there is such a thing. In fact, they've probably experienced what they might call good luck once or twice in life. If you ask someone if they think that there is such a thing as fate, most people have room in their belief system for the idea that some things just happen because it's supposed to be. 
It was his time to go. We'll say that. Or, uh, you know, it was fate, it was destiny uh, that brought two people together and so on. A lot of people are also quite superstitious. In other words, they believe in something that is beyond their control. They have some respect for what they might refer to as the realm of the unknown. And because they can't explain it, they're quite superstitious about it. And then, of course, there are many people who may not even be true believers in Jesus, but even they would acknowledge that there might be such a thing as getting answers to prayer. Uh, I mean, you can talk to God, and some people just seem to have the ability to get answers uh, from Him through prayer. But somehow those same people have more difficulty in believing that there really are occurrences in human history that cannot be explained in any other way except for the unique supernatural intervention of God into human affairs, what we would call the miraculous. Now, it's not surprising that people who don't believe in God would also disbelieve in the possibility of miracles. But what is really surprising is that a lot of people who view themselves as religious would also refuse the possibility of the miraculous. Some of them uh, would even profess to be Christians. Some of them would even be ministers of religion, and yet they do not believe in the miraculous. They would cite the lack of scientific evidence. Or they would say that miracles are merely anecdotal. Or, uh, you know, they're personal experiences that they can be explained in other natural ways and so on. However, this book confronts us immediately with the claims of the miraculous. It's not subtle at all. It isn't trying to trick you with the wording. It just states the fact that God is intervening in human affairs, and here is a prime example in the very first chapter. It's a miraculous birth that stems from the divine conception in the womb of a young Jewish girl who had never been physically intimate with a man to that point in time. Now, this raises the question for us, as to whether or not we believe in miracles. Do you believe that the God of heaven does these unique things from time to time in history, and He doesn't do them on a whim, but He does them for a purpose, and He does them to work out His own decrees in order to cause things to happen that have been promised for centuries So that sure enough, in the fullness of time, at the exact moment of his choosing in history, God himself inserts his supernatural power into the normal course of events and does something that cannot be classified in any other way but to call it miraculous. Do you believe in miracles? Well, What I want to do this morning is follow the reaction of the first person in this gospel to hear about this miracle. And of course, 
Uh, I'm talking about Joseph. And while that doesn't initially sound very applicable to us, let me assure you that it is, because in verses 19 to 25, what you have here is a sequence of events that every reader can identify with. In fact, we have something here that we can all sympathize with, I think, as a reader of the gospel, and I can easily make this point by asking you this question. How would you feel if you were in Joseph's place? How would you feel if you were Joseph's parents and he just told you what Mary just told him about what had happened? How would you feel if you were a friend or a relative of Joseph hearing this news? Would you have Joseph committed? Would you post it on social media for a laugh? Would you confront him about ending this relationship with Mary? Or would you keep it very private? Where would your sympathies lie? With, Matthew, uh, with Mary, who can't hide her pregnancy forever, or Joseph, who just got the news that his betrothed is having a baby that is not his? Well, first of all, what we have in verse 19 is Joseph's reaction. Now, last time we considered verse 18 and the background to all of this. Now, I want to look at Joseph's reaction to this news of a miraculous birth. And just to kick us off, I want to remind you of what I said last time, that this passage gives us at least six indications of the virgin conception of Jesus. We started noting them last time. In verse 18, the first indication is when it says to us, before they came together. Remember that? That's the first clue in the passage that we have a virgin conception. How do we know? Because it says that before there were any relations between Mary and Joseph, she was found to be with child. The second indication is at the end of verse 18, when it says that this was by the Holy Spirit. It was before they came together, and it was by the Holy Spirit. Well, Joseph's reaction then is now a third indication of the miraculous. I mean, Joseph knows good and well that the child is not his. In fact, according to the Gospel of Luke, which records the story from Mary's perspective, Mary had very wisely ensured that there would be no genuine rumor going around that the baby was Joseph's. How did she do that? Well, as soon as Gabriel gave her the announcement, the Scripture says that Mary rose up in haste. She was in a big hurry. And she left town. And she went up into the hill country and visited the home of a credible spiritual couple. Her cousin Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, who was a priest. Now, Elizabeth herself, you remember, had a similar experience of something miraculous in her life. It wasn't a virgin conception, but she was an old woman, uh, well past the age of childbearing. And God said to her husband, Zechariah, well, your wife is going to have a son. And he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah by preaching to the people so that they will receive him when he comes. And that baby's name was what? All right, John. He grew up to be known as John the, right, the first Baptist. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, he was called John the Baptist because he practiced a baptism that was a sign that people truly had repented of their sin. 
When they accepted his baptism, they were stepping up publicly. They were saying, you know, my whole life has changed. My whole mentality has changed. I'm showing it by this baptism. I'm ready for the Messiah to come. Well, Mary was told that her relative, Elizabeth, was also experiencing a miracle in her womb. And so she makes haste. She's going to flee to that household. And I want you to know, it wasn't just to compare notes with Elizabeth and talk about nursery colors. Uh, It was really to secret herself away. She wanted an alibi. She wanted to separate herself from Joseph. And the Bible says that she stayed there for three months until the second trimester. And then she went home, which, as you ladies know, is when she would start to be unmistakably visible in her pregnancy. Now, as I said, Joseph knew the child is not mine. And his reaction certainly implies that, and it also reveals that Joseph did suspect that the child was someone else's. In other words, he doesn't believe the explanation that Mary gave to him. And of course, we really can't blame him at this point. Uh, Just picture what you have here. It's a young Jewish girl. Twelve was the minimum age at which they could marry. Uh, Often they did marry at 13 or 14 or 15. Very young in our Western culture. But picture a teenager about the age of my daughter Livy. (laughs) Just turned 15 yesterday. And she tells you that an angel has appeared to her and the angel had a conversation with her and she was able to ask him some questions and he answered them. And the bottom line is, you know, mom and dad, the Holy Spirit of God is going to do something in my womb and I'm going to have a baby. Well, Joseph can't believe it and neither would you, right? Of course, we don't know what her parents thought. We're not told. But I wouldn't be surprised if they had the same reaction if you, your 14-year-old daughter came to you and said the same thing. So he's thinking about this situation, and he's considering his options. And he doesn't have a lot of them if he wants to keep his own testimony. And I do think it's apparent that Joseph is a spiritually-minded man, uh, somebody who really would care about protecting his testimony. So in spite of the fact that he has a deep love for Mary, and he obviously knows her character, as it's described in Luke's gospel, someone who is meek and humble, someone who is full of grace, in spite of those things, Joseph simply cannot accept this strange story coming from his betrothed. And so what are his options? Well, where would he find those options as a man who believes in the Word of God. Because whatever course he takes, if he is a godly man, it has to be a scriptural course of action. Turn to Deuteronomy 22 and the law of Moses. Now, this is something Joseph would have believed and lived by. I want you to see the first option that he would have considered. In your Bible, if you have headings in your Bible, you might have a heading of a verse 13, which I do in my Bible. And it says this, laws on sexual morality. Now, we're dealing with an issue of morality here. There are certain situations that are anticipated by God, and he gives the verdict in such cases in this chapter. All right? In other words, 
He, he is the divine lawgiver. And he gave his people, Israel, his laws. Here they are. If any of these circumstances develop, they already know God's answer. Look at verses 23 to 24. Here's one of these laws. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband. Well, that's the situation here, right? The virgin is Mary. Joseph is her betrothed. Well, okay, that's the case. And a man, another man, finds her in the city and lies with her. And that's what Joseph believes has happened. Then you shall bring both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. Capital punishment. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city. In other words, she's not being raped. Of course, in those days, uh, as it is in much of the world today, you share the walls with your neighbors. And nobody has any real privacy for something like this. Uh, It would be nearly impossible if they really cried out and screamed for nobody to hear. So evidently, she did not protest. And the man, well, he's to be stoned because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from among you. In other words, this is considered to be a very serious moral violation. This is what the Bible calls adultery. And although modern media have glorified this sin and become sympathetic with those who do it, and the moral fiber of our culture has broken down, that we are quite desensitized toward us, uh, toward it, even as a church, it's still a serious violation in the eyes of God. But I want you to know that Joseph is not a vengeful man. He's scriptural. He's not vengeful. He's not going to throw the law book at Mary out of spite for what he thinks she may have done. How do we know that? Well, because he takes option B. Option B is found two chapters later in Deuteronomy 24. This is the option of divorcing her, and it's found in verses 1 to 5. I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but this gives the option of not making the individual a public example, but in a private way, just sort of just setting her aside, divorcing her. Now, this, of course, is what Joseph decides to do, as you can see in verse 19. But I want you to notice how God records that decision for us. He gives the decision at the end of the verse, but before that, he actually describes Joseph's character. Look at it. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, meaning he's a righteous man, and that simply means he has to act. He can't can't simply ignore what he thinks is unrighteous. Being a righteous man, he's going to do something, but not wanting to make her a public example, option A, He was minded to put her away secretly, option B. So clearly, we have a man who has the moral character not to ignore the supposed sin of Mary, but neither is he going to demand the full weight of the law on what he thinks is going on. Instead, he chooses the gentlest approach available to him in Scripture, and I think this is a wonderful example for us, right? I mean, you don't ignore the sin, but neither do you have to come down with a heavy hammer. No, quite often the best approach is to deal with it using Scripture's best, gentle, available option. You know, sometimes 
as parents or spouses or friends, we have been wronged, terribly wronged. We've been embarrassed. We've been violated by the actions of those that we trust and love. And our first inclination is to whack them with the full weight of the law, whether man's law or God's law. I mean, let them feel what we feel. Let them reap the worst possible consequences for hurting us, misusing our trust, sinning against us and God. But wait, maybe a gentle approach. One that's still scriptural is the best way to maintain the relationship. The best way to rebuild the trust. Of course, every circumstance is different. I'm not trying to make a blanket statement here, but all I'm saying is consider all of your options, as Joseph undoubtedly did, before you instinctively take the one that will hurt the other person the most. Well, I want to bring you back to the primary point here, which is quite obvious, uh, and it's the fact that Joseph is not prepared for a miracle, even though he's a Jew, even though his whole background is filled with God's miraculous interventions in the history of his people. I mean, you know, this is not, this is not a, a pagan man with a pagan background who's never known any miracles to happen in his nation's past. If anybody should be predisposed to a miracle, it should be this Jewish man who knows Scripture and who loves God. In other words, the whole background to this man's life should make him open and prepared for miraculous possibilities like this, and yet he's not. And in that way, he's actually a parallel to millions of religious people in Western countries who meet in Protestant or Catholic churches where a creed might be repeated or a liturgy might be presented and the words are sometimes the true statements of Scripture, and yet they're totally clueless about what a miracle in Scripture really means and what it implies about God. That's because, as I said earlier, apart from our own death, we're not really prepared for a miracle. And here is exhibit A in the case of Joseph. So what is God going to do about that? Well, he does what he has to do for anybody. If they're going to believe in his existence, if they're going to believe in the fact that he does miracles, he's going to have to make the point himself. And he does it in the life of this man in verses 20 to 23. He reveals the truth of the matter to Joseph. He does it in two ways. First of all, verses 20 to 21, he does it by angelic verification. He's going to send an angel, just like he did to Mary. The angel will come to him, verse 20, in a dream. That means Joseph is what? He's asleep, right? All this takes place in a dream. But unlike my dreams and your dreams, which I'm certainly glad are not true, this one is true. It's also miraculous. Now, in speaking with Joseph, Notice that the angel begins by reminding him of who he is. How does he do that? Well, he says to him, Joseph, son of David. Now, Joseph is a common carpenter. He might even be a stonemason. He builds things with his hands. 
He hasn't been reared in a privileged home with other people serving him like royalty. I mean, that isn't his upbringing at all. So I'm guessing that nobody in his whole life ever said to him, Joseph, son of David, let alone an angel in a dream. So why did God have the angel address him like that? Well, I'm sure it wasn't just to puff him up. And I'm also sure it wasn't simply to encourage him. No, it was clearly given in order to remind him of an ancient promise made by God. You remember that in the genealogy, we are confronted with this person who is the son of Abraham and the son of David in in the first verse, and that David was the king. And as we saw, the reason these two people are mentioned is because God made an unconditional covenant with each of them And this baby is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant that he made with David. So the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, and Joseph needs to be thinking about that because of what the angel says next, which is the verification of what Mary had told him. That child is conceived in her of the Holy Spirit. It's verified by the angel. And then in verse 21, certain predictions are made. She's going to have a child, and what's going to be the gender of the child? It's going to be a son, not going to be a girl, it's going to be a boy. His pronouns will be he, him, and his. And then the angel assigns his name to be Jesus. Now, There's also a reason as to why Joseph should call him Jesus, and there really needs to be a reason from one standpoint, because the fact is, there were a lot of boys running around Israel with that same name. How do I know that? Well, because the Greek word Jesus is the equivalent of the Hebrew name, what? Joshua, right. So when the angel spoke to Joseph, if he spoke in Hebrew, He used the word Joshua, and there's lots of boys named Joshua because that's one of the greatest heroes in Israel's history. So why name this child with that common name? Well, next line, here's the explanation. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, I want you to think about this with me. If his name is a common one, what does that explanation have to do with it? I mean, call the baby Jesus. Why? Well, because he'll save his people from their sin. Okay, but a lot of other boys have the same name. So what's the connection of the meaning of the name with this particular baby? Well, what does the name Jesus literally mean? Now, you know, Hebrew names uh, are often a combination of other words. And in this case, you have two Hebrew words associated with the name Joshua or Jesus. Uh, The first one is the word saves, as if somebody is in big danger. And then the other word tells us who is going to do the saving, because it's the word Jehovah. So it literally means Jehovah saves, and Jehovah is the Old Testament word that God identified himself with. I am Jehovah. I am that I am. I am Yahweh, or Jehovah. So if you're looking for the Savior and you want to know who rescues people, the answer is this, Jehovah does it. Jehovah saves. 
So why call that baby Jehovah saves? Explanation, because he is going to save. So Joseph, call him Jehovah saves because that baby of yours is going to save. Well, if the baby is going to save, but Jehovah is the one who does the saving, what does that make the baby? Now, of course, we know the answer to that because we know the rest of the story. Do you think Joseph had that figured out by this point? I don't know. But what I do know is that for all of us who read this gospel, this becomes the message. In other words, do we understand that this is communicating that not only is Jesus the Savior, but the fact is it would take God to do the saving. So when you come to Jesus of Nazareth and someone asks you the question, do you believe that he is the Savior? The implication is whether or not you believe and accept that Jesus is God himself. And that when you come to him, you are experiencing the salvation of God. This is clearly communicating that it would take God himself to save people. In other words, it would take a miracle because you're saying that God would have to intervene in the normal course of affairs and he would have to do something supernatural in order to save someone. And the fact is, the text itself is quite dramatic in making this statement. Literally, it reads this way. You call the, call the child Jehovah saves because he it is, or he himself will be the one who does the saving. You know, I began the sermon by asking you, do you believe in miracles? Well, you're going to have to come to a conclusion about that because that what it, that's what it takes in order to save any one of us. It's going to take God entering into my situation and doing for me what I have found from bitter experience to be impossible to do for myself. And I don't believe any one of you can do it for me either. In fact, I think you're in the same situation that I'm in. You need miraculous saving as well. I think the Pope needs saving. I think Albanese needs saving. I think King Charles needs saving. Mary needed saving. Joseph needed saving. And I think that way, not because it's my own personal opinion, but because the Bible says that every human being who is ever being conceived is born dead in trespasses and sins. Now, that really explains the whole course of their life. I mean, that's why they act in the way that they do. That's why they think as they do. It's because they were born blind without any spiritual life. And deep within them, they were at enmity with God. In fact, people don't have to go very far in life before they start to express their fundamental disagreement with God. And I can illustrate that very simply by our reaction to the law of God that we just read from Deuteronomy 22. If you took that one law in an election year, and in your ads on TV, you told people, now here's a sample of what I believe in, and I'm going to stand for that. I'm going to propose that as public policy in a new marriage act and the consequences of immorality. Well, how do you think that's going to go over in a country like this? 
you know, one, one where the majority of people profess to be Christian. How long do you think your election campaign would last? I mean, it just makes the point that there really is a fundamental hostility to God and His rule within us, and it's there from very early on in our lives. Now, some of you were saved later on in life, and you can remember the way you felt before you truly came to Christ, before God did a miracle in your heart, before you were saved. I mean, you didn't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk about God. You don't want to think about God. You didn't want anyone asking questions about your relationship with God. You thought, you know, you thought all Christians were weird, bigoted. Well, the Bible says this attitude is because of our nature. I mean, we, we are born this way. So what would it take for any of that to change? Well, you know, God asked the question in Jeremiah 13, can a leopard change its spots? And then he added this, neither can you change what you are. In other words, it would take a miracle. It would take something out of heaven. I mean, we're reading about a miraculous birth. That's precisely what the Bible says has to happen to all of us. In fact, Jesus himself called it a new birth. A birth from above. A birth from the Spirit of God. It would take the implantation of a whole new nature by the Holy Spirit of God. And when that miracle takes place, and you accept the work of Jesus Christ, it becomes evident by a total change in your viewpoints on life. Now, many of you can testify to this and the change in the, that has come over in your life since you came to Christ. And you know, if there's anyone here and you still need to come to Him, and you know, if you're holding back and you just kind of want to dip your toe into Christianity and church without going all the way, get a little bit of respectability, you know, well, the answer for you, my friend, is to throw yourself on God. And believe that what he says is true. And the miracle of a change of life will happen to you as well. Joseph is told that this baby is God himself. And he will deliver people from their sins. You ever really thought about what that actually means? I mean, the, you know, the kinds of sins he will deliver people from include the sins of immorality. He will deliver people like David who took another man's wife and then took the life of her husband. He will deliver people from sins that come out of their mouths. Doesn't that happen every day? He will deliver people from sins that nobody knows about. Our envy, our pride, our selfishness. Listen to the statement again. He will save. This child will, will save his people from their sins. David was one of his people, and if you're saved this morning, you are one of his people. And if you call on the name of the Lord, you, you would be one of his people, and he would save you as well. Well, look at verse 22 to 23 now, because the angel is now going to give Joseph additional verification. And this is... Wonderful, because this is now the kind of verification that is offered to all of us today. 
not the verification of seeing and hearing an angel in a dream, but it's the verification that is given to everybody in the Bible. You have a Bible this morning, and it's right there for you, right in Scripture. God said to Joseph, through the angel, you know, this whole situation with Mary is what happened, what I said would happen hundreds of years ago. Well, now I'm doing it. And I do want to point out, by the way, that these verses continue to be the angel's speech. And we know that because verse 24 says, well, Joseph woke up. So keep in mind that the angel is giving Scripture to Joseph in his dream. Now, what passage does he give him? It's one that we know very well. Who can give it to me? Thank you, Isaiah 7.14. So I don't want to skip over this just because we know it so well. And, you know, we hear it every year at Christmas. I want us to understand the significance of this passage. And that, that means going back to Isaiah 7 to look at the context for a moment. So let's do that. Let's just marvel over what God said and did over the course of centuries. All right, turn to Isaiah 7, if you will. The background of Isaiah 7 has to do with a king in Judah who was a descendant of David's royal line. The man's name was Ahaz. And what was his problem? Well, there were two other kings who were conspiring to take him off his throne, and they wanted to put a usurper in his place, the son of Tabel, the passage says. We don't know anything about this guy except for the fact that he was Tabel's son. That's all we know. But these two kings had decided that they were going to put this guy in place as a puppet king under them. So they uh, wanted to uh, organize a coup, in a sense, and take uh, the throne of Judah, and that would deal with the Ahaz problem. And Ahaz is scared that this is actually going to happen. Uh, you can read about this in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, when Reason, the name uh, of the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, they had conquered already much of Judah. In fact, they took 200,000 captives, Scripture says. So Ahaz has good reason to be scared when finally these two guys and their armies besiege the city of Jerusalem. They're at the capital city. They're at the gates. That's the background when God finally sends Isaiah the prophet to see him. Now, keep in mind, if you know anything about Ahaz, the man is a pagan at heart. He's not a good man. Doesn't want to turn to God. Doesn't want to listen to Isaiah. In fact, he's already got a plan in mind. He wants to send for the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, who's ruling to, uh, over what is today Iran and Iraq. And he wants to give him all of the treasury in Solomon's temple if the king will send his armies and help him get rid of these other two guys. Uh, basically, he wants to buy himself out of trouble. But God says, uh, now look, Ahaz, I'm going to take care of this. And if you doubt me, then just ask me for a sign. Ask me for a miracle, and you can ask it in any realm. He says, you can ask it all the way down in Sheol, in, in the abode of the dead. You can ask me something in the heavens. Ask for anything you want. I'm going to do it as a sign that I'm going to deliver you and the people of Judah. Well, Ahaz... The unbelieving king, he's kind of like a cranky child. Uh, and he says, well, I don't want to do that. 
I don't want to tempt the Lord like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to ask for a sign. That's silly. In other words, I want to do this my way. I like my way better than your way. But this is a great offense to God. And so God says to him, verse 13, Hear now. And it's not just Ahaz he addresses. All right. Hear now, O house of David. You catch that? God is addressing the whole house of David. And from that point on, all the pronouns are plural in the Hebrew text. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, plural, the house of David, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, a specific one in the plan of God, the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the sign from God. Now, do you realize the significance of that sign when it's given to the whole house of David? I mean, what was the conspiracy here? Take the descendant of David off the throne. Let's replace him with a puppet king. Okay, but what's the promise in the Davidic covenant? That as long as someone was on the throne of Judah, it's going to be one of David's descendants. Now, the conspirators, of course, probably didn't realize they were challenging the unchanging covenant of Jehovah, but they were. They were ultimately raising their fists against God and his covenant with David. So here you have this guy. He's an unbeliever. He's a wicked king, but he's in the royal line of promise, and God is going to keep his word in that covenant. So he comes to this man, and he says, you know what? I've made a promise. This plot is not going to happen. They're not going to overthrow you. You don't need to be afraid, Ahaz. It's going to come to nothing. Now, just go ahead and ask me a sign. I'll show you. No, I don't want to do that. Let's just go with my idea. All right, house of David, I'll give all of you a sign. And you can see that the sign of the virgin conception was a sign to the nation that God really is going to be faithful to the Davidic covenant. So when the angel comes to Joseph and reminds him of that scripture, it is a reminder to him of the faithfulness of that covenant. I mean, Ahaz never lived to see the sign, right? Of course, he lived to see the deliverance of his throne because God dealt with those conspirators. But he never lived to see the fulfillment of the sign. And God knew that he wouldn't see it because the sign wasn't just given to him. It was given to the whole house of David. So just listen to the angel again with that in mind. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Look at the Scriptures. Look at Isaiah 7.14. Look at the prophecy, Joseph. The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name God with us. So you call him Jesus. You call him Jehovah saves because he will be the Jehovah who saves, just like Isaiah 7.14 said. You can see that the prophecy was not just a prophecy of virgin conception, which is what we tend to zero in on. It was also a prophecy of the incarnation. I mean, it's talking about the presence of God. God with us. Not as he was with David or with Abraham or present with Joshua, but you're talking about the incarnation. It's a baby in flesh, and yet that baby is God. 
It's just like John talks about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. That's the full scope of this wonderful prediction that you have. So do you believe in Scripture as the Word of God? Do you believe in the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah that was written seven centuries before Mary and Joseph? I mean, centuries before the Roman occupation of Israel. Centuries before any of those events. Well, if I can apply this to you personally this morning for a moment, here's what you've got to reckon with, all right? You have an ancient prediction written on Hebrew scrolls that was written centuries before Mary and Joseph were even thought about, all right? Then you have the events as recorded in Matthew 1, which claim to be the fulfillment of what those scrolls predict. I mean, think of it like this. You know, they, they uncover the reading of ancient writings in England from the 1300s that prophesy a specific miraculous event that just took place this year. I mean, that's what, you, that's what you're looking at. Now, if Jesus of Nazareth is not the fulfillment of what those Hebrew writings predict, then those scrolls are still standing and claiming that a miraculous conception is coming and that the baby who will be born is going to be God with us. That, that's what you have to reckon with. It's the fact that this has been written for centuries and Scripture says it's going to happen. Okay, if it didn't happen in the first century, then we're still waiting for it, but those scrolls still say what they say, that it's going to happen. So when do you think it's going to happen? Well, your options are, I don't believe it's going to happen at all because I don't believe in miracles. It's just a lot of nonsense written hundreds of years ago. Those old scrolls are nothing more than that. They're just old scrolls written by men. Or your options are, no, I do believe in miracles. And I believe that these prophecies are the word of God. So it did happen or it's going to happen. And the last verse of this chapter tells you what Joseph decided about that. Because he had to make that same decision. Look at how the story ends. Verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph being aroused from sleep, and here's what he did. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took to him his wife and did not know her. He kept her a virgin till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And then lastly, he called his name, what the angel said he was, the Jehovah who saves. He called him Jesus. In other words, Joseph took God at his word. And whether or not he fully understood it, we don't know, but he believed in the miracle. So, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that the gospel is this miracle? Do you believe that this is the good news of God intervening in history by sending his son in flesh? And that he did it so that this same son could die in flesh and pay the penalty that you'll have to pay or I'll have to pay in my flesh if God didn't do it for me. Do you believe that sin is really serious? Do you believe that even the smallest sin is deserving of capital punishment? In fact, it's so serious that it's an eternal punishment. But do you also believe that God is so loving and wonderful 
that He sent His own Son to bear that penalty for us. And that is what explains this miracle. But do you have any room in your faith system for a God who literally cracks open human history and does things like this, totally beyond our capability, because He loves us? Because He's willing and He wants to save us. My friend, if you don't believe in that, then you're left without any hope. Because you know you cannot change yourself from the inside. You know that. You've tried it. So you're doomed. It's only going to get worse. You're going to go out into eternity in that condition. You will be sealed in that condition forever. Unless you put your faith in a God who does things like this. And who brings the miracle of new birth to people every single day. Just for the asking. Because yes, He is a God of miracles. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You so much for the miracle that we are reading about this morning that has been recorded for so long, but stirs our heart once again with the incredible love that You have for us, that You would do this so that we might be raised to new heights as Your children, be co-heirs with Jesus, that we might be saved from our sin and given so much in Him. Father, we thank You for those here who have pledged themselves by faith to the Gospel. Father, there may be some here who have not. So touch their hearts, we we pray. May they realize their condition before it's too late. And may those of us who know Him be bold in proclaiming the message of salvation. And we thank You and we praise You in Jesus' name. Anyone who has heard this message now and has not yet made themselves a recipient of God's grace, it's so easy, it's that decision of faith to accept this gift of God, this gift of grace and of love, um, maybe today needs to be that day of decision. You, you've heard enough. You know enough. So why do you delay? There is a time where it becomes too late. And you don't even really know if you'll make it home alive today. Things can change very quickly. Why put it off? Why put off God's grace? It can be yours for the taking by a decision of faith. So consider that this might be the morning you need to do that. We, we don't have the tradition so much of calling people forward um, by way of invitation at the end of our services, but the invitation is always there. You can certainly come, and if you step forward, then Pastor Mike or, or one of the, any of the pastors or their wives, some of our deacons and wives, would be very happy to come alongside of you and talk with you and pray with you, answer your questions, and make sure it's clear what you need to do. That invitation is always, always open. Just step up while we sing. Or contact us. Come see us immediately after the service. Call us during the week. But do not put off the decision that you need to make. Your eternity is at stake. And we're going to all, uh, most of us here have, have experienced this gift of grace. We have 
the opportunity to rejoice in that and what Jesus has done for us. And so we're going to stand and sing together, yet not I, but through Christ in me. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. He is my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me.
your testimony today and that you will take that with you throughout the week. God bless you. You're dismissed.